Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As someone who spent six years covering Capitol Hill and the White House, I can tell you that official Washington likes to call things by weird names. Names that serve political purposes. Take, for example, the Inflation Reduction Act. With the Inflation Reduction Act, this Senate Democratic majority has achieved what countless others uh, have come to Washington promising to do, but ultimately failed to deliver. Okay, fine, Chuck Schumer, whatever you say. The truth is, this bill is about climate change, no matter what Senate Democrats had to call it to get West Virginia's Joe Manchin on board. So you could give this thing a few other names. I mean, there's the Manchin made this take a while act. (laughs) (laughs) That's Pranchu Verma, who covers innovation for The Washington Post. He was gracious enough to play along with my congressional bill naming free association exercise. There's the the crazy sci-fi green tech is coming upon us act. Uh, You know, I'm kind of curious what you think. Could you call it, could you call it a a carbon reduction act? Or is it more of like, here's some cool carbon tech act? Yeah, you could call it a carbon reduction act. You could call it a, um, you could call it an alternative energy act. You could call it. I mean, frankly, you could also try to, you know, there's so much with electrical, electric vehicles in there, mm. you, call, you know, you know, here's what's getting, you know, electrical, electrical vehicle modernization or affordable electrical. Ugh. That really rolls off the tongue. That doesn't, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> Inflation Reduction Act is better than that option. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm done naming bills on my, I am, I am I'm fired from that job. <laughs> But in Pranchu's day job, which is to report on new technology and innovation, he sees this bill as a potential game changer, something that can take climate change technology and supercharge it. You know, this is unparalleled levels of investment, um, specifically for climate change. I mean, I know that there were proposals to fund far more and give money far more to climate technology and climate change solutions. But the 370 billion roughly is still the single largest, you know, investment from the US government in history to stem global warming. So, um, and the way it's being done, it does seem to have a shot at being very transformative, I would say. So today on the show, the climate tech gets a lot more money and maybe changes the planet act. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined, no matter what you call it. Stick around. Hold up. 
Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. You can think about climate tech as any type of technology that helps mitigate climate change, from electric vehicle charging stations to sustainable batteries, solar energy to direct air carbon removal. It's a hot sector, no pun intended. The accounting firm PwC says there are 78 private climate tech companies worth over a billion dollars. The Inflation Reduction Act is not the first time the government has plunked a significant amount of money into climate technology. Back in 2009, President Obama's stimulus bill contained $90 billion to promote clean energy. Some of that fizzled, most notably with the failed solar company Solyndra. Other technologies of that era, Franchu says, just weren't ready for prime time or weren't cheap enough for widespread adoption. But since then, the tech has gotten better and more attractive to investors. And so now, you know, we're having a second generation attempt at this. And a lot of it is being driven by government investment, no doubt. Um, and then also, you know, the business case kind of became more apparent. Uh, and venture capitalists have now taken a lot of, you know, ownership in the space for better and for worse. But there is a lot of venture capital money kind of flowing in to, you know, supplement the government cash to research and develop solutions. And you're starting to see, you know, a few kernels of like themes coming up of like places where climate tech is really advancing. How does the Inflation Reduction Act do this? Like, what are the mechanisms? They're tax credits, really, and 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 just raw dollars for research and development. I would say that really are the two main mechanisms through which you'll see um, climate technology companies get bolster and get funding for some of their solutions or or make it more of a business case to to go and do their solutions and 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 uh, you know try and and invest and in, and make you know some gains in some of their technology that they're testing out. One thing that's notable here is that the clean energy landscape in which the government is making these investments is pretty different from what it was back in the early 2000s. The raw cost to do it is getting cheaper, right? The, the, because of the scientific innovations, the process innovations, it's still expensive, but it is cheaper. And there's a more feasible business case for like, hey, I create this thing that is going to create wind or solar power and distribute it to millions of people. But doing it at a cost that's affordable to the individual consumer or to a state that wants to use this was really never that possible. But because of the technological gains, because of some of the process gains over the past decade, spurred in part by government research and investment and, and other research and investment, it's now becoming more and more possible. Still needs more work. And I think this is where the IRA comes in, where it, 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 it spurs and jolts this next level of innovation to get more process gains and to get it cheaper and to get it into a place where it becomes feasible in a time scale that we need, which is, you know, right now. Climate tech takes money often big chunks of it right up front for research and investment. 
And that, theoretically, is where this bill comes in. Pranchu has a good analogy. Climate technology is not unlike um, pharmaceuticals and biotechnology, right? Like you have, when you think about it, when you need to make a medicine, you have no idea if it's going to work. And so Hmm. you need to pour a lot of money in and it costs, right, they say like billions of dollars to make that first pill and then five cents to make every pill after. Climate tech is kind of like that. Like until you figure out an energy solution that actually works, it takes billions of dollars to get there. But once you perfect it, then you can make it cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But we're still in that phase where we need a lot of money for these climate tech solutions. And so, you know, the investors are getting more more and more lured in as the government is becoming more and more a partner in some of these places. I'd love to take a couple of of pieces of kind of the most promising technology and and really dig into them. Um, What stands out to you? What are the buckets that you're looking at? There's carbon capture. Um, I think, and alternative energy. And within alternative energy, there's geothermal energy and and green hydrogen and, and nuclear fusion energy that I think are, you know, you see some of these buckets um, uh, really becoming more common and and more getting more attention nowadays. But, I, I, you know, I would definitely say the thing we'll probably see first out of any of those will probably be things called carbon capture systems. And carbon capture systems, we've reported on this show before, essentially they suck carbon out of the air, either actively or passively or semi-passively. How does this bill prop up carbon capture? So before this bill passed, companies that captured carbon out of the air would get $50 per ton of carbon they captured out of the air as a tax credit from the government. And to qualify for that tax credit, they needed to capture at least 100,000 tons of carbon out of the air. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's a lot. This bill, instead of that $50 per ton, now companies will get $180 per ton for every ton of carbon they capture out of the air. And to qualify for this credit, they no longer have to have a big project that's 100,000 tons of carbon. Now they can have something as low as 1,000 tons of carbon. And do the companies that you have talked to and the industry people you've talked to, is that attractive to them? It is. Um, I talked to a host of CEOs of carbon capture systems. And carbon capture systems, it's still unclear to me how much they actually cost on the market because I think the CEOs are still developing that actual business case and business model. But they're not on the order of billions, but they're on the order of millions, right? And it roughly costs about $400 to $600 to operate a carbon capture system for every ton of carbon. And so now if you think about that, $400 to $600 in operating costs per ton of carbon, if the government's only giving you $50 per ton back, you know, you got to make sure that your price point, you know, you you you, you got to make up that money somehow. Right, you got to charge a lot. You got to charge a lot. Now, $180, that 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 is that is the level of difference that, you know, our CEOs are saying they can now go to a, you know, not just philanthropies, you know, like a Bill Gates philanthropy or something, but they can go to venture capitalists, they can go to outside money raisers and they can say, "Look, we're now getting more money from the government." 
we have a better business case to say we're going to get returns in the future because we're getting more support from the for, from the from the government. For them, the banking is, is that you know they get to the path where they can mainstream this technology. But right now, that that's really helpful to lure in some outside cash for these companies who are, you know, it's a cash intensive business. What other technology is getting a big lift from this bill? You know, I think uh, nuclear fusion is going to be another one that we see get a, a a pretty big lift of attention from this bill. It's really interesting because nuclear fusion has always been considered the holy grail of of energy, right? It's harnessing the energy from two nuclear atoms when they're splitting, harnessing that that energy, which is very hard to harness, and then using that to create an alternative source of energy. And this can be unlimited and clean. And yet it's scientifically been nearly, you know, not impossible, but very science fiction-y to consider it, um, you know, mainstream. But Again, like in the past five to six years specifically, you've seen nuclear fusion reach a few milestones with a few companies. Um, and again, the the money that's coming from this this act, you know, that's going to invest you know hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in, in continued research um, is going to be what I think is is, is needed um, to bring this technology and solve some of the, the last minute research problems that that these. Um, these companies are having to bring it to scale. And then I think the thing that is on the market or seems most most close to being on the market in a widespread way, obviously, is electric vehicles. What does the bill do there? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the, ultimately what the bill does is that it makes billions in tax credits available to make electric vehicles cheaper for the consumer to to buy. And then right. also, this is an investment. This is you and me going and buying cars. Yeah, yeah exactly. And it's not just like, let me invest in the technology. It's like, let me invest in and making it cheaper to buy these solutions. When we come back, is government money for clean tech just a climate change band-aid? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. 
but there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Like anyone who spends their time thinking and writing about innovation, Pranchu got pretty excited talking about the weird stuff in this bill. Technologies that would no doubt be helpful fighting climate change, but still feel kind of sci-fi or even borderline impossible. I mean, I do think the most experimental thing I've heard and we reported on was this thing called, which I kind of love, it's called super hot rock energy. And I mean, you know, if you think about it, the earth generates a lot of heat, right? And and it's theoretically limitless. Um, and so we've used the earth's heat before, right? It's called geothermal energy. So, so we've used the earth's heat before to, to harness it and, and, and use it to make power. But it's never been at a powerful enough scale and done widespread enough throughout the world to, to really make such a dent. And so now you have scientists that are really trying to go deep, deep, deep down into the earth, like nine miles deep, deeper than anyone has ever gone before, you know, to go to a point where the earth reaches about 750 degrees Fahrenheit. And so they want to drill a hole all the way down there. And then they want to pour and pump water all the way down there. And then they want that water to turn into like a really potent energy filled steam and then pump that energy back up, that steam back up into the uh, Earth's ground, put it through a turbine and make it, you know, a, a source of power, you know. Hmm. And so that is theoretically, again, limitless source of energy and nearly zero carbon emissions through that process. But just to give you a scale of the challenge, the science actually isn't the challenge here in this one. It's really the engineering. I think the, 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 the most anyone has ever drilled deep underground is a Russian team in the 1980s drilled about seven and a half miles deep under, underground, right? So you're saying now to make this type of energy theoretically possible, you got to go deeper than anyone's ever done. And they did it decades ago, right? So, so that challenge is really, really... Um, you know, it's hard to see. Another piece of pretty far out tech that gets some money in this bill would essentially put a carbon capture system on the back of a train car. The train's brakes would power it and then it would suck carbon out of the air and store it in a reservoir on the train. I mean, talk about sci-fi, right? Just the logistical issues of, you know, will train companies want to put carbon capture systems on, on, on their trains? the thousands and thousands of, of trains that would need to have carbon capture pods on them, you know, is that actually feasible to get to a level of like, you know, okay, we're making a dent in the environment and we're, we're an active reason why we're getting to net zero admission emissions. Um, and so, you know, who knows if that's actually going to happen, but it's, it's, it's definitely more in the field of consideration now, because I was just talking to the CEO of that company and he's like, look, I'm in a $10 million fundraising round right now. I need to develop a prototype by next year. And this, this is, this is changing the game with my conversations because people are willing to put more money in there now. And so for him, you know, it's helpful to, to kind of have this environment where, you know, experimentation is being you know, it's being actively thrived and, 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 and given a jolt because of this bill. Listening to you, you are actually making me think of processors, of, of 
the Pentagon's investment in computer processing chips and how government money spurred the commercial sector and the private sector to make faster and faster chips that are now, you know, cheap and easy and and readily available to you and me. Do you think that's a fair analogy? Yeah, I actually had not put that in my mind together, but hearing you say it, that's a great, that is a great analogy. It's the tenant of what we're seeing here. It's, you have a technology that's been, you know, up until a certain point, hard to master and government money comes in at a time where it makes it a little easier to master and process gains come in. And then you build a culture right from the universities to the investors, to the founders and the scientists, right? Like that's the important part is you build this culture and, and communication with each other of innovation uh, around climate technology that kind of feeds each other and then helps build process advancement quicker and quicker and quicker and quicker. And like you said, with the processors, now you have a, a where processors of, of three years ago, three months ago, are, are seen relatively outdated with the level of pace of innovation. So let's hope that, you know, that kind of principle and that culture gets fostered in the climate technology space. I mean, we see the seeds of it. Um, and can this be, you know, the catalyst? Let's let, let, you know, time will tell. In terms of time, Pranchu says we won't really know if any of the tech jump-started by the Inflation Reduction Act is successful for at least a decade. And it might take even longer than that for it to bloom commercially. That's a lot of taxpayer money for something uncertain. At the same time, there's another criticism of clean tech, that it doesn't fundamentally alter the behaviors that led to global warming in the first place. One of the big knocks on carbon tech in general and and things like direct air carbon capture is that they're Band-Aids, that they don't take enough carbon out of the atmosphere to make a significant dent in, in climate change. How much do these things move the needle, do you think? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I so it's a complicated one because when you talk to critics of carbon capture, they say this exact thing. They're like, well, all carbon capture is really doing is it's letting me emit as much as I want, but then letting me create solutions to just take that stuff out of the air, right? So it's like, okay, you know, I, I'm not changing my underlying behavior, um, and that's what really moves the needle. But that being said, for better or for worse, government has kind of is relying on carbon capture to achieve, you know, upwards of 10, 20 percent of net zero emission goals by 2050. So hmm. in the strategy of the government, um, it's it's a core component um, but the theoretical reason for it, I think, gets a lot of critique because it's seen as something that's easy for industry to adopt because it's it's not it's not shaking the boat for industry so much. It's just kind of throwing money at the problem. Right. Like oil and gas companies get to keep doing what they want to do. And as long as they invest in in carbon capture, no biggie. They're set. Yeah. Which 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 isn't right. And I feel comfortable saying that even as a journalist, because if you look at any sort of climate expert talk about the challenges ahead, I mean, you need more than Band-Aid solutions. You need whole level systematic ground up behavior change from, from everywhere, from companies to people. And you have to think about it. Well, if, if every dollar is precious, how much of those dollars should be sent to Band-Aid solutions versus hmm. 
spurring ground up behavior change solutions. And I think, you know, that's the tension that the government has because, you know, well, in actuality, the carbon capture systems might be a little bit more further along, right, than some of the more behavior change solutions of uh, making systematic change on alternative energy sources. I mean, I guess it's not unlike looking at the larger critique of this bill that has come from environmentalists who have said this isn't good enough and other people looking at it and say, hey, man, don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Every minute counts. And we're now at the point where just individual action alone is no longer considered feasible to stop the world from warming. Uh, large level systematic government level change is is what's going to move the needle. And so this is definitely, you know, potentially moving the needle. Um, but is it moving it enough? Who knows? Um, and and is it going to create an environment that makes it easier to move the needle, you know, perhaps pass more ambitious legislation in the future? Who knows? Maybe this is as ambitious as it'll get. And then we'll basically, you know, see 30 years from now whether it really did much or not. Or does it spur a culture of innovation on climate technology uh, and create more bills that help us get towards the progress? It's all it's all kind of, you know, we'll have to see, you know, by 2030 and 2050. But but 2030 is pretty close. And, um, you know, anything that can be, you know, given even an extra year of 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 timeline because they have a little bit more money to make their solution market ready you know if it's a big enough solution that that can that can move the needle Pranja Verma thank you so much for your reporting and for talking with me absolutely it was a pleasure Lizzie Pranja Verma is an innovations reporter at the Washington Post and that is it for our show today what next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell our show was edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next, and Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Sleep. What Next TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and we're also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. And if you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. Okay, we will be back on Sunday with another episode. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles, but for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Mershon, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com. 
from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I'm host of Amicus, Slate's podcast about the law and the U.S. Supreme Court. We are shifting into high gear, coming at you weekly with the context you need to understand the rapidly changing legal landscape. The many trials of Donald J. Trump, judicial ethics, arguments and opinions at SCOTUS. We are tackling the big legal news with clarity and insight every single week. New Amicus episodes every Saturday, wherever you listen.